Hallelujah. Father, we confess with this song that our testimony concurs with the greatness of your name manifest to us in our salvation. Your greatness is revealed to us in the pages of your scripture. Lord, immutably and infallibly recorded, powerful and effective, always and ever the standard of righteousness, holiness, and truth, and accomplishing that which you have sent it to perform. We acknowledge the greatness of our God in the scope of your plan of salvation unveiled through history from ages past, which we read of today in our Genesis series shortly, as well as our own testimony ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have a great God and Savior. We have a sufficient sovereign and Lord. We have a holy and perfect sovereign who rules and reigns over this earth, our lives, each minute details of our schedule, as well as every atom in the cosmos. We celebrate even this season looking forward to another occasion to marvel at the incarnation of Christ, God become man, taking on the burden of our sin, dying in our place, arising and ascending before the right hand of the Father as another reason to proclaim that you are great and greatly to be praised not only in the city of our God in ancient times, but in we, the body of Christ, in the city of God now fulfilled as we, been inhabited by the Holy Spirit, living stones, temples of the Holy Ghost, who are being fitted together with the rest of your church for all time to praise your great name. Would you use the proclamation of your word to glorify yourself, and to man magnify your name and the understanding and in the affections of each hearer. And would you equip us as your church to better represent you, to walk in obedience, and to tell the truth to others of how they might be saved according to the name and the work of Jesus Christ. It is in our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, what a great privilege and honor it is to turn in our scriptures to Genesis 41. And as you're able, I encourage you to do so. As we continue to chart the progress of God's work and revelation through one Joseph, his servant, who dominates the pages in his biography of the remaining chapters of Genesis. And there's a reason for this, I suggest, and we will learn more about that reason today, as his life and ministry have reached a profound turning point. The humiliation of Joseph is about to change to exaltation. The title of this morning's message comes from a dream, a prophetic dream that Joseph received when he was 17. The first of two, the sheaves of grain. And the title is Rising Sheaf. And we'll reference that in the course of our message. Genesis 41, 33 through 45 will be our text today. Stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. The goal of preaching today in this sermon, is to behold the glories of Christ typified in Joseph's ascendancy or rise to rule. So as you hear the scriptures today proclaimed in your hearing, think about this. What glories of Christ are signaled or typified in Joseph's arising to rule? Here we have the word of God. Listen now it is, as it is proclaimed. Genesis 41, 33-45. 
and the plenty will be unknown. Let me back up to verse 30. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. 33. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you, <clears throat> shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set over him all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As a companion text and an introduction to our message today, turn with me as you're able, in addition, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews 3, we see how the Lord has used the account of servants of old, to foreshadow the glories of Christ. And here Moses is featured in Hebrews 3 as an example, but I suggest the same pattern applies to Joseph as well. There is a great theme that emerges in Joseph's life and is signaled by the events, this turning point, this change of fortunes that we witness today. This theme of Joseph's life and calling we've identified as messianic ascension, rising to rule for the purpose of saving God's people. The great turning point in his fortunes recorded in chapter 41 signal that there is a fulfillment upon us. Here is the messianic ascension from the place of humiliation that was prophesied so many years ago. In Hebrews 3 verse 1 we read this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who, can, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a, mo of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Today, I submit to you that if Moses was a forerunner of Jesus Christ and identified as such in this passage, then we could draw the connection to Joseph and say perhaps that Joseph was a forerunner of Moses. In our text, Joseph receives his big breakthrough, his big break as he is summoned to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He's waited two years since he begged the favor of the cupbearer, who upon returning to his position promptly forgot to put in a good word for him. That was two years ago when Joseph requested it of him. However, as Joseph takes the opportunity now, 13 years in the making, from the time he received his first dream to now, standing before the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, it is interesting to see how he handles this opportunity. He does not limit his counsel to expounding the meaning of God's word to the king, although in our last message we saw how he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. But he goes on. Joseph goes further to address this question, what should be done? In light of the famine that is upon them, knocking at the door just seven years after seven years of prosperity, what should be done? Well, Joseph answers this question, demonstrating all the while his administrative skills and wisdom. Joseph advises the king on famine policy, if you will, and his words are heeded. As a forerunner to Moses, as we tie these two men together and then eventually tie them to Christ, his testimony must have been a great inspiration and encouragement for Moses, the servant to come so many generations later. It's helpful to notice these things or to think about the connection between the figures in Scripture. No doubt one of the reasons for Joseph's trials and his ascendancy was to encourage a similar servant who would speak freedom, who would speak deliverance to the people of God under a regime to come in this same land, namely Moses. Joseph's obedience, for someone who is learning from it, like Moses or you and I as we read, demonstrates great faith. Most in Joseph's position, I submit, would take every opportunity to seek the favor of Pharaoh, perhaps by, even by flattery. Recalling the fate of the baker, after all, who at the whim of Pharaoh was hung for whatever offense he had committed, a fearful man would advise the king to take on the task of preparing for this calamity himself. In other words, Joseph might say, if he was afraid for his own life and seeking the favor of Pharaoh alone, if those were his sole motivations, he would say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, only a man as wise as you, with this information, could guide us through this time of plenty and to prepare for the famine to come. But this is not what Joseph did. In fact, Joseph instead suggests that someone else would take on this burden, thus implying a deficit perhaps in the king's abilities, or at least risking the king assuming as much. Nevertheless, in his confident posture and subsequent exaltation, so Joseph confidently proclaims God's word to the king, and gives wisdom objectively, undeterred by the situation, speaking in this way, and confidently and boldly, Joseph appears and serves as a forerunner of Christ. There would come another covenant son in the future, thousands of years in the future, who would stand confidently before the governor Pilate. And he would recognize 
that that man, though it would appear, held his fate in his hands from any casual onlooker. Nevertheless, Jesus knew the truth as Joseph did. Pharaoh or Pilate would have no authority unless it had been given from above. John 19, 10 through 11. What a good lesson for us. Anyone serving at any time, any king, any tyrant, whether they be ruling today or a thousand years ago in ancient times, they would have no authority unless in God's providence it had been granted from above. There are many other striking parallels that emerge as we behold the exaltation of Joseph in the courts of Pharaoh. And Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 teaches us to read the scripture in light of the Messiah to come. So this morning, as we behold a few of these details, I pray that we behold the glories of Christ that are signaled by Joseph rising to rule. So let me give you a heading and three main points today. Joseph's messianic ascension, so a rising to rule in order to save, comes by way of three things. Number one, prophecy and providence. Number two, wisdom and stewardship. And number three, coronation and veneration. Coronation, of course, is that ceremony where the object, the crown, representing authority is granted to the anointed servant. And then veneration is the honor, the praise, and the reverence, the respect that is due the leader and, and, and is offered to Joseph. So prophecy and providence. Joseph's messianic ascension happens by way of prophecy, first of all. Uh, let me turn you back to the very first dream of Joseph we mentioned briefly earlier in chapter 37. Perhaps you recall a specific detail in this dream that comes to a bold relief as we see it in light of the events we've just read in chapter 41. Genesis 37, 6, Joseph recalls his dream to his family. He says to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Verse 7, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. I've underlined that phrase, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And then I also use a modification or a modified title from that sentence for today's message, rising sheaf. Joseph's sheaf arises in his dream and stands upright. And what we find in the course of his life story is that before his sheaf stands upright, it is first brought low. Now this is a detail in the dream that I'm sure would easily be missed. But as you see how powerful and profound the Word of God is, in light of the way the events unfold, suddenly things become clearer. So this was the Word of God by prophecy in chapter 37. It happened, kids, when Joseph was how old? How old was Joseph when he first got his two dreams? You kids remember? 17, that is correct. And now another trivia question for you. It's been a few years, and now Joseph stands before Pharaoh. How old is he now, kids? 30. 30 is correct. So what's 30 minus 17, all you math whizzes out there? 30 subtract 17. 7, close. 27, close. 13 is correct, thank you. I think so anyways. I'm not a math whiz myself. 13 years have passed since that prophecy that your sheaf will arise. But those 13 years, that might not seem too long in the course of one's life, but, I, but emotionally, and they would feel so much longer if you experienced the trials and tribulations that Joseph did. 
how much harder is it to believe God's word that he has purposes for you to arise and to stand and actually command the veneration and the bowing down of your family and perhaps others? How much harder is it to believe that when you find yourself stripped of that, those royal robes or at least something that represented uh, the favor of your father, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery in a foreign land, separated from the covenant promises, at least geographically and in your family that you had grown up with, the love of your father, the care of your family, the vocation that you knew, and then move thousands or however many hundreds, at least miles away into a foreign land. There, after a brief time of favor that you experienced in your master's house, Potiphar, then you're framed for rape by his wife, and now, to save face, you're thrown into jail once again. You find yourself in the second pit, lower still, if it could be said, rotting away in jail. Perhaps 10 years there, we're not quite sure how much of that time, but I, I, I think it's probably a good portion was spent in jail. Nevertheless, the word of God will not return void and is more powerful than the circumstances that Joseph faced. And today in our text was proven as much. The sheaf is arising. The sheaf, as it were, that represented Joseph is standing upright. That original prophecy by way of dream, behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, is now coming to pass. For 13 years, events have seemed to conspire against Joseph in every conceivable way. But God's word is powerful. And God's spirit cannot be challenged, not by king, not by a captain of the guard, not by life's tragic circumstances. No, the word of God in the end proves true and Joseph arises from the pit. Now, this arising comes not only by way of prophecy, but also providence. And under this second category, providence, we have the testimony of another that leads to his being lifted out of the pit. Let's call this the herald's testimony. What is a herald? Someone who brings good news. And in this case, it's the chief cupbearer in verse 9, just reviewing some passages we've covered in prior weeks. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. He slaps his forehead as I imagine. It was two years ago when my own dream was interpreted. I'm reminded of it as my master has dreamed. He continues, verse 10, When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, he put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. Verse 12, key fact. He now remembers. A young Hebrew was there with us. Kids, who is this? Who is that young Hebrew that was with the baker and the cupbearer in prison? Shout it out. Joseph, thank you. A servant of the captain of the guard. We told him... He interpreted, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. This is the herald's testimony. In prior messages, we called this the unlikely advocate or the remarkable advocate speaking on Joseph's behalf. But this is a pattern, by the way. There would be other covenant sons in the future, especially Jesus Christ, whose testimony would be heralded or preceded by another. Someone would go before Jesus in his ministry to prepare the way for the Messiah. This was the herald's testimony in the case of John the Baptist. A similar situation. And John the Baptist goes forth and declares the Messiah. 
and he calls the people to repent. And the herald's testimony in this case was a man who had experienced the power of Yahweh, the anointing of God, Joseph as a prophet, and now he proclaims this good news. There is an agent, one who speaks on behalf of the great one true God. There is a prophet of the ultimate sovereign of this universe. I know him because he has spoken to me, so I'm here delivering to you that news. Brothers and sisters, if we're looking for someone to relate to in this story, perhaps we could relate to this fellow. You know, a lot of times we like to envision ourselves as the hero of the story. I want to be a Joseph. I am a Joseph or what have you. But no, we are more like the cupbearer, someone who has committed a great, great offense against the sovereign, but was forgiven even though we find that offense was apparently worthy of death on a tree in the case of his comrade, uh, the baker. Yet now, uh, having been delivered from his death sentence, he proclaims the good news that my dream was interpreted and the mercy that God showed me in a dream was made known to me by the prophet of God. So we have a herald's calling as well. Jesus will return, and he will come again in more glory still than before. Jesus, like, like uh, Joseph, the ark of Joseph's life, in his first coming, came in humiliation. He nevertheless, like Joseph, received a turning point, which we'll mention later, uh, crossed a turning point in his life where his humiliation turned into exaltation. And that trajectory of the exaltation of the glories of Jesus Christ yet continues to this day. With, ever, with no waning and no dipping down, but only an ascendancy. There's coming a time when Jesus will return and his kingdom will be set up once and for all. And the consummation of all the events of history that he has ordered according to his perfect plan and the fullness of the elect have finally come in and the new heavens and new earth are established. But in the meantime, we have received the prophetic word inasmuch as God has saved us and spoken the truth of the gospel to our hearts. So we can relate to the cupbearer and the herald's call to fulfill the great commission by telling the gospel news. There is a sovereign and he has spoken. And so in this way, the herald's testimony, testimony the cupbearer, serves as something of a parallel of our own call. Finally, there's that great turning point. And I have, I have circled verse 14 as the moment, the shift from humiliation to exaltation, from being brought low to being lifted up in the life of Joseph. Note verse 14 again. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. So Joseph was falsely condemned. He was uh, unjustly thrown, thrown into the pit, oppressed and imprisoned and enslaved and so forth counting all of these circumstances in his life. But there came a day when the king said, go get that Hebrew servant. And they did so. And Joseph was brought out of that pit. And here he's cleaned, he's shaven, his clothes are changed to make him presentable before the courts. And in a sense, he will never leave those courts again. Once Joseph steps into the, the, the favor and the presence of the king, it isn't but moments later after his testimony of the interpretation of the dream and the uh, counsel of wisdom in light of its meaning that Joseph himself is exalted to rule in alongside, at the right hand, if you will, of Pharaoh himself. This verse signals the turning point in Joseph's life from humiliation to exaltation, the sheath 
is rising. The sheaf is rising from the pit. This is a foreshadowing of a resurrection event. There would be another who would arise out of the pit, a deeper one still, suffering the just wrath of God as a payment for our sins, buried and suffering under the weight of the cross and then buried in the death, the cruel death of Calvary, Jesus Christ, three days in that grave, in the pit, as it were. But there was a moment, a turning point, where the Joseph to come, if you will, his humiliation, his condescension, his false accusation, his being condemned and tortured and put to death would reach a turning point. When was that turning point? Of course, the quick answer is the resurrection. That would be the obvious one. But I love the insight of R.C. Sproul, who asked the question and came up with a little more precise answer. When was the turning point of the humiliation of Jesus giving way to glory? He identifies it as Matthew 27, 57 through 60. If you have some time to, to check that out on your own time, please do so. Matthew 27, 57 through 60. Here, the body of Jesus is collected by a rich man, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And he's laid, he's given a dignified burial in a rich man's tomb, one that had been unused and was purchased personally by this man of importance and influence. R.C. Sproul says, Here was the moment where the fortunes of the humiliated, humiliated Christ began to turn, and his humiliation in taking on the sin and suffering that our sin deserved took that turning point or changed to the exaltation. And of course, shortly thereafter, three days later, that grave proved not powerful, that stone not heavy enough, the Roman authorities not authoritative enough, the seal on that stone was broken, the stone was rolled away, and the earth shook with the power of our resurrected Messiah. And he arose from that grave with exalted body. The resurrection body of Jesus Christ testified to his exaltation and glory. And but 40 days later, the disciples witnessed him ascending. Kids, what does ascending mean? Coming down or going up? Going up. But 40 days later, the disciples witnessed him going up, ascending into the clouds. And thus, the work of Christ at that pivotal moment changed from humiliation, condescension, to take on the burden of redemption, to the fulfillment, exaltation, and return to the glory he had once and forever shared at the right hand of the Father. And this is a glorious testimony that Joseph parallels in his experience. Joseph's messianic ascension came by way of prophecy and providence. Major point number two, wisdom and stewardship. Again, in a surprising turn, he not only gives the interpretation which was asked of him, but he counsels in famine policy before the courts of the king and this great empire what to do about these coming uh, deprivation, these coming years of famine, 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, Joseph says, means the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Then there's a shift in his counsel in verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Now, as you do the math and read between the lines, there's some interesting details here, and there's some commentary that is helpful to fill in the gaps. 
There's a few things that you might note. Why only a fifth each year? Well, perhaps the bounty is so great that that fifth will be sufficient to carry the land through the seven years of drought. Perhaps this testimony and wisdom, this profound, uh, this profound uh, event that has happened, this Hebrew rising to rule, and his great wisdom and influence is appreciated beyond, uh, in the entire realm, especially as he goes forth and commands the veneration of the people. And Joseph, had, with the anointing of God upon him, no matter what domain he was in, whether he was in the pit of prison or in the house of Potiphar or second in command of the empire, he tended to draw the favor of the people as he was such a good example of wisdom, Christ-like, if you will, uh, obedience to the word and the application of the word of God, servant-hearted leadership, even at the cost of suffering. And so as he went forth, there are probably many who were inspired by this famine preparation campaign and began to give and to give and to give. And the culture and the values and the uh, priorities of the entire realm were affected by the word of God and the word of God applied through his servant who is speaking with wisdom as to the situation. And then, course 36, that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Wisdom and stewardship of Joseph, evident in his counsel. This reminds us of the very first commandment of all. One might ask this question, where did Joseph get his insight? Where did Joseph glean his wisdom? How is it that he, a Hebrew slave, having spent this time in prison, never really owning much land to his own, 17 when his you know, budding shepherd vocation was interrupted by these tragic events, how is it that he gleaned all this wisdom? Well, I suggest the answer comes to us from Psalm 119, 105. The word of the Lord, may it be a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path, the psalmist praised. The word of God, even the smaller amount compared to what we enjoy, that Joseph was aware of, would have come by oral tradition through the patriarchal lineage. Joseph would have heard from his father, and his father from his father, and so forth, all the way back to Adam, the very first commandment. Be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, steward the earth. Make it a hospitable place to serve as second in command, if you will, the calling of Adam, to the Lord to organize, to order, and to take cultural dominion in this mandate of living uh, or and of serving the Lord in your calling to be a good steward of the land that was the inheritance of Adam in the first place. This, of course, is given to us, the record of the first commandment in Genesis 1, 28 through 30. Secondly, in Genesis 9, 1 through 3, Noah disembarks from the ark, and there he is standing on this world that he has literally inherited, just he and his seven other family members. And the Lord speaks to him and reiterates this commandment to take dominion, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. So where did the wisdom and stewardship priorities and uh, and this uh, advice and counsel come from, as far as jo Joseph was concerned, it came from the word of God. This first commandment given to Adam, reiterated to Noah, and now is necessary in order for the known world to be preserved through the course of famine. The word of God preserved through the covenant family was sufficient 
as light and a lamp to prepare the whole world against this coming seven-year-long calamity. Furthermore, we see that the principles of wise stewardship were adaptable at any scale. A man can be diligent to obey these commandments and to apply the Word of God with respect to his own small family income. But the Word of God is such, and His glory and power and sufficiency is such, that the same principles can apply on a national and even international scale. The Word of God is sufficient for governing nations. And principles of biblical stewardship for the health of an economy are as sure as the principle of gravity is for physics. If you obey God's word and his rules of economic stewardship, then your nation will prosper. There is a relationship between economic vitality and the wisdom found in the word of God. In the ancient records of Egypt, historians have found that there was actually an Egyptian officer um, that was identified on different hieroglyphs and different records and his official title was, quote, the Grand Steward of all Egypt. A vizier, I think is the term, which is a Middle Eastern or Egyptian or Coptic word for second in command or for important office. So the vizier of this, of this time, perhaps it was initiated even under Joseph and with this office that was delegated to him at the time of the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. Suffice it to say, Joseph became the grand steward of all Egypt, the vizier who would apply the word and wisdom of God on a national and international scale. Detailing the ministry duties of this Egyptian officer, uh, we find that Joseph is the best example probably in all of recorded history of what this looked like in action, providing counsel, providing principles, and proclaiming the word of God as the basis for the uh, self-sufficiency of Egypt and also their ability to sustain even other peoples in light of this coming difficult era. There's um, resisting the temptation to make several other uh, applications and examples in our day. Let me just mention one in passing. There are many things today that are proposed as, you know, necessary uh, policies in order for us to maintain our economic vitality and health of a nation. But I would just say this, and rather than listing them all and holding them all up, you know, as good or bad and why or why not, let us as a people exercise wisdom and discernment and learn from the testimony of Joseph. And regardless of what issue is at stake and the concern that our nation is wrestling with or any people at any time, let us remember the standard is the wisdom and the basic calling of God. To obey, to obey him and to apply his word in every area of life, including economic principles. This means sound money. This means just wages. This means that the government should not break its commitment and pretend that they can speak material and wealth into existence simply by letting, letting the numbers and zeros be recorded on a computer somewhere or the printing presses overheat at the Federal Reserve, etc., etc., all of these things have significance when compared to the Word of God, and Joseph and his example provides a standard for which to repent and repair to if we are lax in our own call to organize ourselves according to the Word of God. Wisdom and stewardship 
Joseph's messianic ascension is marked by these. Finally, we see his picture of the second Adam prefigured in Joseph arising to rule. This proposal pleased Pharaoh in verse 37 and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? If the Spirit of God was abiding in Joseph and prepared him to take on the burden of governance for the known world at this time, just like Hebrews teaches us to think, we might ask this question, how much greater is the Spirit of God, so to speak, uh, attending Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ himself to equip him to rule all of the nations? And as we see the picture of the Spirit of God enabling Joseph as a forerunner of the authority and the rule of Christ, we're reminded of verses like Isaiah 9, 6. Unto you, a child is born. We celebrate verses like this, this time of year, coming up in the holiday season. A son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. The names of Christ which speak to his ability, his anointing, his renown, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. And of his name and his government, his renown, his fame, just paraphrasing and expanding, there shall be no end. Nevertheless, Christ, or in that exam, or in that verse, the prophetic, uh, the prophetic proclamation is that the government is upon Christ, meaning that the foundation of all just or sound or enduring order, or the direction, the telos, which means the purpose for which history is directed, is based and built upon the Word of God and the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. The picture of this fulfillment in glorious future reality is given to us in Revelation 11, 15, and 16. And Joseph prefigured an event that would far eclipse his own, and we look forward to this day as well. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. There was a time in ancient Israel where the kingdom of Egypt, and, and, and time of ancient Egypt, where the kingdom of that Egyptian empire had become, in one sense, the kingdom of Joseph himself. And he was reigning in that place with wisdom and stewardship and exercising his duties according to the word of God. And people were offering to him their veneration and praise. And, those, and other lesser officials in the courts, ironically, even including Potiphar, the captain of the guard, ascribed to Joseph the honor he deserved, because Pharaoh commanded it so. There is no one else in this realm upon which the Spirit of God resides, so he will be our ruler. The second Adam is prefigured in the ministry, the calling of Joseph. When Jesus condescended and stooped low, when he conquered sin, death, and the grave, and at that turning point, buried in a rich man's grave, then the resurrection and the ascension, there is a purpose and there is an end. He is ruling and reigning even right now and exercises his rule in placing his enemies under his footstool. But when that kingdom is fully consummated, there will be no more enemies that remain evident to us, no more rebels anymore. After all, the last enemy has been defeated, even death itself. And on that day, the kingdoms of this world, it will be fully manifest in our experience, will be shown to be the kingdoms of our God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and He will reign forever and ever. Joseph prepares us for this 
in a small way, but greater glory still is Jesus Christ fulfilling these things ultimately in the ages yet to come. Third and finally this morning, Joseph's messianic ascension. We, have, we see it by way of prophecy and providence. Secondly, wisdom and stewardship. And finally, coronation, receiving a crown, and veneration, receiving praise. Listen to these events. This is quite striking. This is amazing. This proposal, verse 37, back in Genesis 41, pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set over you all the land of Egypt. I've set you over, excuse me, all the land of Egypt. 42, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Can you see it, kids? Kind of like, imagine a parade. You guys on 4th of July attend the parade, and sometimes those important vehicles lead the parade. Maybe they're police cars or fire trucks, or there's a flag. And a lot of times that commands the attention when the flag passes. It is customary for people to uh, pause, maybe a gesture of respect, the hand on the heart, or to pause their uh, festivities for a moment and acknowledge that what that flag represents. Well, in a similar way, there's this parade going through the land of Egypt, and the people are being introduced to the second in command. They're being introduced to uh, this vizier who will, uh, uh, who will carry them through the famine. And as the chariot goes forth and the people stand at attention, and then they bow, recognizing the authority of this man who Pharaoh has delegated with the charge to preserve the land, to save them from the trouble to come. He made him ride in the second chariot. They called out to him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah He gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. We see this coronation and veneration, this ceremony where Joseph is being elevated, lifted up, this rising sheaf. Joseph now is receiving the praises of the people, the honor of the king, and the position of authority in the land. This is signaled by a decree and a signet ring. So in recent weeks, I think two weeks ago, we were in Jude 25, that we used the last verse uh, which gives that glorious doxology, ascribing four things to Christ. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So the people, we, the people of Jesus Christ, his followers, his subjects, we ascribe to him the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and authority. In a similar and lesser way, in this kind of provisional office that Joseph is taking on, taking on the mantle of, these different Events, the decree and the signet ring, the garments, the gold, the chariot, and the worship of the people, the veneration of the people, their expressions of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Again, they're sort of echoes of what will come later 
and be deserving ultimately only of Christ. Pharaoh issues this decree. He rules according to God's word, recognizing the anointing, the prophetic uh, spirit of God within, or the, the, the prophetic call of this man in whom the spirit of God dwells and says, exclaims, can we find a man like this? And in his decree, he commands the people to pay attention and to listen and to heed the word of God. Other pagan kings would do this as well under the administration of Daniel and his three friends. Nebuchadnezzar would find himself repenting of his self-aggrandizement, his pride, and bowing and acknowledging a sovereign yet over him, and then commanding the people to give that sovereign veneration. So this signet ring would be something like a crown. Let's say it would illustrate or it would signify the authority to rule. And so when this uh, ring was placed upon the finger of Joseph, he was receiving this charge and this, uh, this responsibility to rule on behalf of the people, on behalf of the Pharaoh. And so we also, and, and as we think about this and the events and the festivities that must have attended it, I cannot help but think of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Similar expressions of glory and veneration. Jesus, though still lowly at this time, riding on cold the foal of a donkey, enters in. But the eyesight, the spiritual eyes of many are open to recognize that this is the son of David. This is their Messiah. He will arise to rule them. And so they offer their expressions of veneration and praise and taking of their own robes and garments and laying them as a welcoming carpet before him as he enters Jerusalem. And again, taking fronds from trees and waving them and crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so something similar has happened long before in this, the rising sheaf of Joseph's fortunes. We behold the glories of Christ typified in this coronation and veneration of the Lord's servant. Secondly, beyond decree and signet ring, he's given garments and gold. The king says, by decree, you shall be over my house and my people, and, you shall, and they shall order themselves by your command. But he goes on in verse 42, after giving him the signet ring, it says he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Garments and gold. Here again, if we're looking for the Christ-like parallels, when Jesus ascended into glory, he too received garments, as it were. There's a prophetic picture of the glory and veneration of the coronation of Jesus Christ and his power, his glory, or his majesty, dominion, and authority in the book of Revelation as it opens. As the John, as the apostle, sees beyond the veil of his mere humanity into the glories of heaven, he beholds Jesus. And this is the picture, just to remind you. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If the decree and the signet ring, if the garments and the gold, if the chariot and the worship of Joseph signaled some kind of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, 
Let's apply that Hebrews 3 test to Jesus. How much more the garments of our Lord and these symbols of his majesty and authority does he retain even now? And how much more worship and veneration? How much more low, how much lower ought we bow before the Joseph to come, if you will, before Jesus who rules and reigns over his enemies with a rod of iron and a two-edged sword, but over his people with the grace and mercy at the cost of his own shed blood. Those wounds he yet retains as trophies of his loving kindness and proof positive of, our, of the sacrifice to purchase our souls even in glory. Decree in a signet ring, garments, gold, and next chariots in worship. Back in 41, as this ceremony continues, Pharaoh makes Joseph ride in the second chariot, and they call out before him, bow the knee. He set him over all the land of Egypt. Chariots signaling conquering strength, commanding the reverence of the people. And this is interesting too, because in this event, we see the scope of the fulfillment of the prophetic dream all the way back in Genesis 37. There, the sheaves of grain and the sun, moon, and the stars, there were just a handful, 11, as I recall, of individuals represented by those pictures who bowed before Joseph. But we see that this was just a taste of what would come. Little did Joseph know, probably at the time, that when this dream was fulfilled, not only eventually would his brothers and his family members bow before him, but indeed all of Egypt and even the surrounding countries would bow before the king, before the second in command of the king, if you were, if you will, Joseph serving in this position as he now commands the attention and the veneration of the people riding in this chariot as they bow before him. What an amazing picture. And finally, under the coronation and veneration, we have Joseph receiving a new name. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. More could be said in this, and perhaps we will in the future. Suffice it to say for now that the best that the historians, the scholars can figure is that there are two likely meanings of this name, Zaphonath Paneah. In the Hebrew, it recalls this idea of revealer of secrets. Joseph, by name, that is, biblically speaking, his renown and his ability and anointing, his legacy is marked as a revealer of secrets. Joseph was a prophet. But to the Egyptian, to the Coptics, to those uh, in this, um, this people who welcomed him to rule over them, the name Zaphonath Paneah means preserver of life. Quite literally, savior from famine. This is incredible. This represents a whole-scale revival, repentance, if you will. There is a, me- there is a gospel message that has pr- been proclaimed to a nation, and a nation has turned from its idols. Why do we say this? Well, the Nile River, we mentioned before, was seen, it was central to the life and livelihood of the people, so much so that it was treated as a god, a source of provision. This Nile River and all the different gods, we mentioned a few others, you know, grain was seen as a holy offering and it's a medium of exchange and it was elevated to this super significant importance in the consciousness and in the lifestyle and culture of the people as well as cattle. People, the ancients tend to worship things and equate as gods that which was their source of life. So grain and cattle and the Nile River, which was seen as this great source of bounty. 
Those were the objects of veneration and worship in this land. But something has changed. The Nile River is no longer celebrated as the preserver of life. In fact, in the dream, the Nile River is pictured in the years to come as insufficient. The reed grasses would no longer feed the plump cows in the future, but there will be another way that you will receive the life necessary to endure. And what will that way be? The word of God through his prophet, humiliated and then exalted to reign. An unlikely son of the covenant who is now called and identified as the preserver of life, the savior of the nation. And understand Joseph's testimony was, and Pharaoh acknowledged that this power was not intrinsic to Joseph himself, but it was because the spirit of the one true God was upon him. No longer will Egypt look to the Nile for life, but instead the exalted servant of Yahweh, the word of God through his prophet, will secure their salvation from famine. The anointed covenant son will provide bread of life in the wilderness. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters. Again, tying this to Jesus, the anointed covenant son, the perfect Joseph to come, gave of himself his own body and blood as the sufficient source. Christ is our it's a preserver of life. Jesus is the true Zaphonath Panea. He is the one that is the revealer of the secrets of the heart and the preserver of our life. And he does it at the cost of his own blood and his own body. He is the exalted son. He is the one of, with greater glory still, deserving of our veneration. It's a little vision for applying this message. Next time we come to gather in this place, next Sunday, Lord willing, let us come prepared to ascribe to our Lord, to ascribe to Jesus Christ the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority he so deserves. Let us stand before him as if it were a coronation ceremony where we bow before, low before our king, who is our preserver of life. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we confess with the testimony of scripture that you are our sovereign and you are our savior. We thank you that you have made this known in so many beautiful ways through the pages of your scripture. We pray that you would etch upon the tables of our heart more conviction still in light of your word proclaimed today. So far as it has been accurately proclaimed, may it equip us to proclaim, to be heralds of that good news. Like the ancient cupbearer of old who said, a prophet has come. There is a one true God and there's salvation through his son. May we proclaim, proclaim these things today and light of our Messiah, who has stooped so low to die on our behalf, and is now exalted once again, the right hand of the majesty on high, it is in this holy name, the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.